Hey there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. This one was particularly a delight for me, not only for the company I had for the conversation, but also that I was able to record it in person, a luxury I rarely have for this show. Having moved back to the Midwest, I was able to take my guests up on an offer to visit them when they're teaching at Notre Dame, and take some time to spend an afternoon chatting with someone who happens to be one of the best historians of our day. And we would probably have to go back to Will Durant before finding another historian with quite the breadth and depth of history as him. This, for the uninitiated, is a second appearance on the show for Professor Felipe Fernandez-Armesto, the author of wildly popular books such as Civilizations and Millennium, both of which cover nearly the entire span of human history. Two other of his books, which rank among my favorites, are Amerigo, about the man who gave his name to America, and Humankind, a brief story of us. There's also a book I'm dying to find on an audiobook titled Out of Our Minds, What We Think and How We Came to Think It. He also has an upcoming book on Magellan. And as I mentioned in the last episode... Episode number eight, he has an unbelievable amount of books he's written. And I'm not just saying this because he's been so kind as to take up time to talk with me, but his writing is delightfully enlightening as well as it is entertainingly written. Take Humankind, for example, which I read aloud a few portions of it during this conversation. It's a short read but it's so dense with information about how much we take for granted what we now pass off as, quote, human nature, or even, quote, humane. Felipe points out that not that long ago, we were categorizing other members of our species as subhuman, or other than human, and how we should come to grips with our genetics and technology before the very soon-to-come questions about what is or isn't human, because it's been developed in a lab, or choosing to have some type of attributes or genes. Another point of his in the book that when I read it, I about screamed out of my seat is something I think about daily. How in spite of all of our collective advancements, technology, abundance, freedom from toil, you name it. On the individual level, though, it's brought us backwards. And as it continues with ever-evolving technology, can bring us to a near-reptilian state not as wise as our title sapien, was chosen by us to convey. So then what is human? What makes us different than any other animal? Or even just speaking socially, what makes this new revolution of ideas different than the social and economic order that preceded it? And do things really change in revolutions? Or just merely change the face of it? This, along with... What does it really mean to have choice or freedom are some of the main points of our conversation, as well as trying to extrapolate what the future may hold for us. Thank you, Felipe, for hosting me at your house one nice fall afternoon, and thank you all who are listening. I hope you enjoy. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast. 
by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. I'm going to ask you a question to get started then, if you're ready to get started. Um, what, do you, what have you done this week that made you happy? Oh, nothing. I, I'm incapable. At my age and degree of experience, I gave up, you know, the prospect of happiness uh, many years ago. In any case, I think, you know, it's a misunderstanding the nature of happiness to ask the question about what makes you you happy, because I think the whole essence of happiness is it's an unfulfilled condition. That you know, if you think you're happy, you just haven't understood what happiness um, is, because it's a state of soaring, it's a state of you know, kind of approaching um, uh, um, something that you haven't yet experienced. Whereas, if you think you're happy, you're probably just a victim of bovine contentment, which is a very inferior state. But if by, you know, asking the question, what have I done this week that's made me happy, you, if you mean what have, what have I done that hasn't actively made me miserable, <laughs> it would be uh, my, my classes, because um, we're now at the stage of the semester where the students who, who hate me or who you know re- resent my 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 mingy, stingy grading, uh, they've all given up my courses, <laughs> and so I'm now you know in company in my classes with young young people who are who are enjoying themselves and 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 who are you know, taking pleasure in in the time that we have. Um, have together and 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 whose work you know is is improving and I think my greatest happiness is the greatest approach to happiness is is is, is those moments when you know you you see um, evidence that you're actually enhancing a student's life and I I could yeah, I'm definitely not capable of doing that for every um, for every student but they've winnowed themselves now to the, the point where on the whole I've got just uh, great, great experiences in class. I asked I ask the question of happiness because I don't believe in happiness. Because I, what? I don't believe in happiness. Oh, I, good. I believe happiness is um, uh, a fleeting stating, a state of being that usually only actually occurs when you are indulging in some type of vice or another, um, or something that is not necessarily the most fulfilling towards your long-term contentment. But it is a very oh, yes. good, well, yes. good hack. Well, if you're if you're indulging in in a vice, then you'd, probably what you're experiencing experiencing is pleasure, yes. rather than contentment, yes. which was my my word for what most people call happiness. Um, yes. Well, I think John, you know, as um, so often, I think you've got a great insight, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 there's a lot of I don't know common ground between us on this point, but I think I'd emphasize, I'd say not so much that it's a fleeting state as an unfulfilled state, something which you're always only approaching and never achieving. Yeah, a, a process. It, it's a, it's a, a practice, almost, to try to achieve it, because I, I think one of the great um, insights from, from Siddhartha or Buddha or whoever you want to say is that 
life and existence is suffering and we must try to find a way to transcend it and in order to do that it must be a practice it can't be something that is of uh, a uh, a stasis there is no stasis it's it's a it's a running stream no because of course um um uh the, the irony is that that you know, if you were to achieve it, it would cease to be happiness yes. because there'd be something beyond it that you would still be be reaching for. Of course, in in Spanish, uh, you know, the the um, um, the adjective that we usually translate as as happy takes um, a verb which denotes essential being. Mm. Whereas the word that we translate as contentment takes a verb which which denotes a state of being. <laughs> and uh, and I think that might be also a useful way of understanding the the um uh the difference that happiness is it's like a sort of platonic form, you know. It exists but beyond experience. <laughs> we glimpse it imperfectly. The way you know Plato says that we we glimpse reality all reality imperfectly, um, and, and and it it exists. We can appreciate it as an idea, but it, once we've experienced it, you know, then um, uh, well, we, we, we must be deluding ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just as we can't experience, I don't know, eternity or um, nothing. I guess well that goes back to the conversation we had last time we talked, yeah. doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I brought this. Um, I brought a couple of your books, but one of them I wanted to start off with a question. If you forgive me, looking for it um, about this is from your book Humanity, um, and you talk about almost our future. First off, I mean you wrote. This, I'm sorry. You wrote this book, Human uh, Humankind, in two thousand and three. Um, and I thought that it was, it's quite poignant to today, which, which hats off to you for getting so much of it right. Um, and you talk about our future and, and post-human future. Um, and I'm going to quote you here. You say, uh, we will revert to a reptile-like phase of evolution in this state of sensory oblivion, stripped of all cognitive content and uh, bereft of self-consciousness. It will resemble states we now enjoy on a temporary basis, such as bovine contentment, or mindless topor, the pleasures of the slob, the spaced out, and couch potato. But these pleasures can be savored only when they are rare. By incessantly stimulating neural connections into the constrained configurations, Greenfield writes, the new technology might be jeopardizing the very essence, I'm sorry, very existence of human nature uh, permanently. And then you, you go on to uh, almost say as if you were some type of uh, sociopathic beings um, by, by present standards. Do you see that that is uh, only accelerating in the nearly 20 years since you, you wrote that with uh, the advent of social media, which I presumably wouldn't think that you saw coming? Yes, because most of the passage that you just quoted, I'm trying to to summarize or or, or paraphrase or characterize the work of, of Susan Greenfield, a British bioscientist who's um, who's written very um, almost sort of menacingly about her fears of the the way that technology can usurp human functions um, and therefore um, 
I don't know, create human nature by just habituating us to not using a lot of those functions that we're delegating increasingly to machines. Um, yes, I suppose I, 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 I certainly share those, those anxieties, and I guess I do see them, um, you know, becoming uh, increasingly likely to be fulfilled as the capacity of machines to take over areas of our lives increases. Um, and I suppose that the, these fears really take two forms. One is that we lose the use of faculties that are really essential to our progress as, as individuals, to our growth, to our maturation, to our... Um, progress towards towards wisdom. Um, and the most obvious of these obvious is, is, is clearly memory. Um, in fact, I mean, almost all intellectual disciplines, it seems to me, are weakened by very efficient information technology. I've spent a lot of time recently worrying about why my students are often so casual about their homework. <laughs> For example, you know, one can give them a passage to read, it might be quite a, a difficult passage with a lot of stuff really that they need to look up in order to understand it, need, may have unfamiliar terms or, or, or very rare words or very hierophantic language in order to understand the, the passage, therefore they've really got to look up what all these things mean. And they kind of don't do it. Um, in spite of the fact that it's so easy now, because you know you can Google anything and you can get a vast amount of data uh, on it, and with a little bit of critical intelligence, you can um, you know you can sift that data with amazing speed. Whereas when I was uh, um, their age, and I'm going to sound like real old fart now, you know, because I, I I'm saying it wasn't like this in my day, but it wasn't. <laughs> When I was when I was their age, you it was so much so difficult to do this. You had to go to the library, you know, you had to, to to get down a bunch of reference books, and it all took a tremendous amount of time. And then when you wanted to write up the results, you had to go and get your typewriter. And if you made a mistake, you would have to correct it with with this sort of latex substance that you brushed onto the paper. <laughs> it's so much more difficult than it is now when you're just sitting at a a computer with a cup of coffee at your elbow. And I just think that the very Simplicity of the 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 the, the, the workload, it just makes people much more casual about it. You know, they're not taking the because they're not taking the trouble. They're not valuing the results. So I think that's one of the ways in which um, technology threatens, um, uh, you know, the range of human capacities by just you know dehabituating us to using them. And I suppose the second thing is that I, I guess you know everybody must be worried about the dangers of um, misprogramming mm -hmm. very powerful machines, um, because machines will do what they're programmed to do. <laughs> And if you program them to do the wrong thing, if you program them to be very destructive, um, then they'll they'll go ahead and 
and, and, and be distracted with greater potency within the 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 the, the um the areas capacities which they're designed than any human could ever achieve. So I think there are you know I'm I'm I am a technophobe. I do share these 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 fears. You know, on the other hand, um, uh, I, I'm I'm pretty confident that there are some human functions that no machine can ever usurp. And that's, you know, because I, I really believe in the autonomy of imagination. I think that there's something in um, um, imagination which is, which is not replicable outside the mind. Um, and so to that in that sense, I, I mean, whatever artificial intelligence can achieve in the realm of um, hyper-efficiency in programmable functions, I think there are other functions which lie beyond the scope of the, the machine and which are only attainable within the evolution of organic beings. Yeah, I, I'm going to bracket for a moment before continuing on my line of questions, but um, I'm, I'm trying this new exercise where I try to think of things in trinities as a means of uh, understanding their whole, because no, no thing is one thing at once. Um, but I think, and having worked quite a bit in artificial intelligence, um, I'm quite bullish on AIs not being able to replicate much of, of human faculties or what makes us special. And I think it comes down to three things that they will have the most uh, difficulty in replicating. And I think it's uh, imagination, inspiration, and passion. Um, I think, you know, being able to see something that isn't there or uh, come up with something that is rather new and novel, I, I think is going to be very hard. Um, being able to get inspired or set off into a way of thinking uh, or a way of anything uh, that, that perhaps is once again unique, I think it's going to be hard for a computer. And then the resolve to continue down a path, even though it is not, you know, one of uh, um, common sense or, or reason, I think is another thing that, that a computer system will have difficulty. Um, and, and the example I always give is, you know, two people are listening to a professor, professor talk at a lecture hall, uh, and one of the people falls asleep, and the other person gets inspired to become a physicist and, and starts to, and creates the unified field theory, let's just say. Um, that type of instance of, of a computer shutting off or a computer finding, you know, imagination, imagination insights and uh, passion is, is one that I think is damn near impossible to replicate uh, through just binary theory. Uh, well, I, I um, obviously I agree with you about imagination, but I think I know I think I know what imagination is. Oh. I'm not so confident that I know what inspiration and passion are, and and I'm aware that you know a lot of people think that passion is really basically um, uh, well as um, the the Cole Porter song um, says, just a um, a product of chemical. Laws. You remember that? Um, um, I think it was uh, um, uh, Diderot who defined um, love as le frottement de deux intestines. <laughs> so you know, there, there's a there's a strong body of opinion that says that that, that passion is really just a fancy word for 
um, a, a chemical or, or, or neurological effect that's built into our biology and, that, and which we can, can identify, you know, the, the constituent elements of it and therefore we could potentially replicate them artificially. And as for inspiration, I mean, that's a very difficult, difficult um, uh, event to... Uh, to define, even those people who've experienced it are often, you know, very tongue-tied when it comes to trying to explain what's happened to them when they've felt inspired. But unless I'm mistaken, I mean, I see it's basically really one of two things. Either, you know, you talk about inspiration when you just mean you've, you've cribbed somebody else's idea, you know, <laughs> Yes, you take your example of the lecture hall. The professor said something, and you, you've you've internalised that 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 idea, and maybe you've added something to it. But basically, you know, you've you've you're inspired in the sense that you've taken information from somebody else. And the other sense in which people um, um, seem to, and that that's obviously well within the scope of a machine. That's what machines are doing all the time. They're absorbing data. Um, and the other sense in which people talk about um, um, uh, inspiration is when the, the, there's a completely fortuitous link between something that's happened to them at one moment and something that's happened to them at another moment. Um, and they see these two things as, um, as connected. Well, if they really are connected, then the connection could be one that is replicable mechanically. Uh, and if they're not Connected, then it's not really inspiration. They're really kind of misusing the word. So I, I, I'm, I'm slightly doubtful. I guess I think I need to think more about the role of inspiration and passion here. But I'm the reason why I, I absolutely agree with you about imagination. Why I think imagination is not mechanically um, uh, replicable is that um, uh, I, um, uh, I, I see it as. Um, uh, a, uh, an event uh, which is purely mental and which is which is which which you, know, you can't identify any um, uh, any structures, um, whether they're biological or psychic, which can predict the outcomes of imagination. Imagination is just, it, it, it's something that happens with completely unpredictable consequences. That's what makes them imaginative. That's what makes them distinct from the products of other kinds of, uh, of mental processes. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, you know, either imagination is a, an illusion or it's not mechanically replicable. I would say that the same is true of those others as well. I, I, think, it, I, I think the same is true of passion or of uh, inspiration as well. I, I think that they are they're they're just as nebulously defined as well as uh, controlled. Well, but then you're using them as synonyms for imagination. Essentially, right? yeah. yeah. I think that they are the different results. So, imagination, I would say, is the conjuring, and inspiration is the uh, spark, and passion is the perpetual nature of it. I think that uh, I'm stretching it by all means, but I think when it comes into to action and, and reality, it's um, far more complicated than just purely imagination because you have to have the, 
means to continue yourself going forward as well as the genesis to start it off in the journey. Well, I suppose passion is kind of, it's a word for a type of commitment, perhaps, yes. isn't it? Yes. Which doesn't um, necessarily involve any, um, uh, any thinking or... Um, Precisely. Um, uh, um, and... Um, um, You know, again, it just you know leaves on with the the conundrum that that we don't know what 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 it is in our natures that makes us commit to things yes. in the supra or subrational fashion. Uh, but it could well be, you know, that the 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 guys who say that I don't know, there could even be a gene, you know, for passion, or there could be some. Um, uh, um, um, some physical way of accounting for it, um, and you know we could maybe build whatever it is that that causes us to be passionate in the way that we can you know build an artificial limb or uh, um, uh, a hearing aid, <laughs> uh, which is obviously what I need to conduct this interview. Um, Would you like me to sit over there, by the way? Sorry. Would you like me to sit over there? I'm, I'm I think it might be. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm over. My my old ears are not functioning. Oh, that's quite alright. And 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 some idea with inspiration. It's um. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to disagree with you, but I'm just trying to explain why I hesitate over over passion and um. Uh, an inspiration, but if by inspiration we mean X leading to Y, <laughs> then if we can trace the connections, we can in principle reproduce them. Yes. And the, the fact that, that Y may be, you know, one of a, a range of possible <laughs> um, things, it, it's still different from, from the products of um, uh, imagination, which are uh, necessarily more various than those of inspiration in the strict sense of the word, because with inspiration you've always got a starting point for it. So you've always got a path through which you can trace the possible connections. Whereas with imagination, you know, there may be no starting point. You know, the, the the idea that you're the picture that you're imagining, the music, the the uh, the world that you're imagining you may have no starting point even in your existing experience. That's interesting. But wouldn't you say that there almost always is? I mean, Copernicus, in a lot of ways, you know, he, when he said that the sun was the center of the solar system, was yes, picking up course. Ptolemaic ideas and, and yes, so forth. Yes, absolutely. When I say that imagination is autonomous, I don't mean that it, it, it's necessarily always unconnected with any other function. I mean, it, there may be such, uh, such additional... Uh, stimulize the imagination, but it, it's very interesting to me that imagination seems to be able to function without stimulating. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it does that really um, very often when we're asleep. Yes. Um, when some of us have our wildest imaginations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some and of the imaginations keep me up last night. Yeah, there are all sorts of theories about how. Um, uh, consciousness can um, uh, influence um, 
dreams and letting what your other states of consciousness can influence dreaming. Um, but uh, uh, you know, very often the analysis of dreams just comes up against a, a, a blank, and you, you, you know, all you can say is that there's no way of accounting for them. And, and you know, I mean, I just I don't know how do you account for. Um, well, I mean, you know, great music, Mozart often um, weaves together, you know, into a new piece of music, a lot of stuff that he'd already written. <laughs> and, and, of course, great many artists, great many writers are always sort of recycling the same story. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, what makes the work in the end a creative work is the extra stuff that you can't trace. To any previous model or pattern, or or you know, source use your other word of inspiration. So I still think that imagination is is different. And although you can use the words inspiration and pattern, if you like, as as part synonyms for imagination, I think you still need the word imagination to account for all these extra things, which are not accounted for by anything else. And that's what makes it special. Hmm. I can I'll, I will submit that. I think that that's a fair fair point. Um, so to go back to um, uh, technology evolving us or devolving us as uh, people. By the way, I, I've sent several people that passage, the first two pages of the last chapter of, of Humankind, and I've, I've gotten raving reviews from it. Uh, I think it's it's a great encapsulation of a lot of what we're having now. Well, so well, thank um, you very much. So kind of you. Thank you very much for sharing my, my, oh, no. my work to other people. No, it's it's. I, I, well, your writing is impeccable. I, as, as somebody who tries to tries to write, uh, I find it quite inspiring. Um, but uh, so, so this is a question that I was biting my tongue not to ask earlier when we were having lunch, but um, do you think that we are forking as a species? So right now we are sapiens, and we have certain types of faculties that are given to us. Um, and now, as almost what we were talking about earlier, of you know, you, you drop off uh, one of our sapiens in uh, uh, you know, a wilderness, and, and how often would we be, be able to survive? Or even somebody without a cell phone dropping them off in the middle of London, how, how easily would they be able to find their, their hotel? Um, do you think that we are, are forking as a species? And to give you a little bit more, um, I'm going to uh, shout out to a, a friend of my wife and I's that we've met, uh, Jeff and Annie. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that there is a set of sapiens, a set of, of, of us or humankind, uh, however you want to encapsulate that. Um, definitions are so slippery. Um, that are going down this, this technological route of um, almost like that, that movie WALL-E where the screens are giving us everything and we're almost going to this... Uh, uh, I like how you put that, this, this sociopathic reptilian state of, you know, pleasure is being streamed to us and given to us and, and provided for us in such a way that we don't have to really think and we can really indulge ourselves into um, these faculties that, that used to have to come with, with such uh, effort. Um, and then also I would say that there's another part of that which is, is probably fastly coming um, more towards the middle of my lifetime in all likelihood, which is the genetic revolution and you know defining on ways in which we can alter ourselves in one way or another um, and then also going back to the, the friend of mine I just shouted out to um, these, these set of humans that are almost trying to be the peak examples of homo sapien if it's you know eating rather ancestrally and exercising rather ancestrally um, and and really living their lives in a way of saying you know we're, I'm gonna take the the tools of technology that we have to provide ourselves to 
be able to, you know, gain more knowledge faster or understand how to gain muscle faster or run faster or, um, you know, uh, interact with the world around us in, in ways that I'm, I'm quite um, fond of, such as, you know, restorative agriculture and forest mm-hmm. agriculture and things like that. So my, my question really is, is are we at a nexus point in which we are splitting into perhaps multiple different species depending on the paths that we are taking? Well, you've identified three, <laughs> sort of three sources of, of menace to um, the survival of, of human nature as it has been constituted up to this point. And those three threats are respectively... Um, robotics, genetics, and biotics, you could yep. say. And, and I guess we've already talked a bit about um, about robotics. I think maybe one d- danger that I've become very aware of recently that mm, maybe we might be a little more alert to is that of um, admiring machines so much, <laughs> admiring computers so much, that we start imitating them <laughs> instead of thinking in a human way. Yep. And I definitely notice this. I mean, it's a very trivial example, but in, in my university, we're now, you know, um, beset by, by multiple question questionnaires from the administration <laughs> if you can you know, reduce everything to these very simple formulaic um, uh, um, algorithms <laughs> and, and of course life isn't like that um, and I recently had the the experience of writing back to the the part of the university of bureaucracy responsible for one of these these questionnaires saying that um, you know, I, much as I appreciated their efforts, I just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't deal <laughs> with the questionnaire. And I was afraid that I would get into trouble, you know, because it was a questionnaire about, you know, quite an important uh, matter that relates to, you know, one of the critical needs that we, we face in, in the academic world of responding to, you know, the, the, the call to be more, um, more welcoming to, um, uh, and more more inclusive of a diverse um, range of students and, and colleagues and collaborators and I am very much in favour of that. But you can't reduce it, you know, to this very simple question. So I was afraid I was slightly afraid that I might get into to trouble for appearing to dodge, you know, this really important matter. Uh, but no, I got a, a message back from the um, from the part of the university administration that was responsible, saying, um, you know, thank you very much. Uh, you're now listed as having completed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I, but I, it's a trivial example, but it does show there is this danger that we're actually um, becoming content with thinking like machines ourselves. And obviously, if we go on doing that, we end up you know, losing our yep. ability to think in other ways. Uh, as far as the sort of second thing that the genetics is concerned, I mean, I, I am very worried about this because, you know, the history of technology does show that there's never been a technology that hasn't been applied. Right? We've never been capable of inventing a technology and saying, no, we're not going to use it. Even, you know, horrible things like, like hydrogen bombs <laughs> And, and um, drones, I mean, you, you name it, it's all these killing technologies. We haven't been able to stop ourselves using them. 
So, so it's absolutely it seems to me to be absolutely predictable that we will use genetic engineering to eliminate types of humans we don't want, and that will be, you know, morally on a par with with eugenics or genocide, which are otherwise. No, in my opinion, no morally no superior. Your, to, your point in humankind is rather compelling at this point, I, I must say. Well, it, you know, I, I, it's kind of you to say, say it. I, I find it compelling because I'm really worried uh, about it. I don't trust, um, you know, my fellow human beings not to abuse this this technology. I mean, it's like say, if they if if they refrain from doing so, it would be slap against the. You know, all the historical precedents and the last, you know, we've got no way of predicting what's going to happen to the future other than by looking at the, the past and expecting the, the same again. That's, that's been the pattern so far. Um, so I am extremely worried about, um, about that and I, I can't see any way of preventing it. You know, I don't think you can legislate against it because the legislation will either sort of become obsolete or ignored. Um, I don't see any way of, of fighting against it because the resistance will be overcome. I can't see any way of arguing against it because as we all know, um, uh, winning an, um, uh, an argument very rarely changes what happens. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I just think that we're bound to face this. I, my, I mean, you know, my my students' generation and my my children's or grandchildren's generation are, are going to have to find some way of of coping with this. And I suppose, you know, it's, if you think of what what the world had to do to frustrate genocide and to interrupt. The progress of eugenics. Well, you know, the world had to fight the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's a bit of an oversimplification. That's basically what happened. Uh, I guess you know something similar will will have to happen in the future when the uh, world is faced with uh, the the wide scale abuse of of genetic manipulation. Um, and I suppose the third thing, the biotics, and I do think this is really interesting, you, you rightly point out that there are people now whose, whose idea of you know, what it is to be a, an achieving um, human is to be like a sort of caveman. <laughs> and, um, I'm very you know, fat and feeble, and um, um, I've never thought... Um, that I was my, my body. I've always hoped I wasn't, <laughs> because it's such a revolting body. <laughs> uh, but but um, I, I'm amazed, you know, that in a world where the opportunities for intellectual enhancement, of enhancement of intellectual life, or the, of the the accumulation of um, uh, of knowledge for the the um, the exchange of ideas with other people, all these opportunities are greater in our world than any previous generation has ever experienced. And yet, most of my fellow human beings are not interested in them at all. 
and they're much more interested in um, um, in looking good uh, physically. Uh, and I think that's a terrible worry as well, because you know, again, if if that's going to be people's priority, well, you know, just beware of what you wish for, because um, to look well and think badly is the worst possible combination. Yeah. Um, uh, it's the prerogative of the harlot. Yeah. Well, and I think to your to actually to your own point. Um, and tying it back to the technological, I think more often than not, we there is a crop of people that only care about looking good through the looking glass, and by that I mean looking good through media or through technology. So maybe they, you know, their appearance is one way, but they put a filter or some type of of artificial intelligence augmentation that all of a sudden makes them look a different way, and you know, through the world out to that looks out on their social media profile or whatnot, they look one way, but in, in reality. Uh, they look a, a, a quite different way. Um, yes, I, I, um, how, how right you are. <laughs> you know, Shakespeare said reputation is a bubble. Um, and, you know, bu- bubbles always burst. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of, you know, you're all talking about happiness. I, I, like you, I don't really believe in happiness. I certainly believe in unhappiness. Yes. And I think a short way to it is to overinvest in what other people think of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, there are people who are nothing more, really, than their images. Um, um, and, and maybe one of the vices of technology that we haven't adequately stressed in our chat today so far is the way you know technology does make it possible to project an image which has nothing to do with the way you really are yep. and you know one thinks of this strange modern phenomenon of influences mm-hmm. uh, you know I mean God preserve me from not only from being influenced by me but from being one yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, yeah. anything worse you know than being responsible for other people wrecking their lives, which is, and, and or or you know or being a sort of media personality or a celebrity, what a dreadful fate that is! And how dreadful, for example, to go from being the um, the uh, son of the the. Prince of Wales to be yeah, the king yeah. of Sussex. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. a terrible, <laughs> terrible trajectory from being in a very privileged position in which you actually might be able to do a bit of good for the world to being, um, I don't know, a tagline on the Oprah Winfrey show. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I think the celebrity is a feature of our evolution, if you want to use that way. Because in much the same way that influencers exist now, I mean, I can make an argument that Lord Byron, Byron was the first such influencer, at least in the modern convention. I mean, he rose to such high prominence only to get cut down rather, you know, scrupulously by his dealings in, in Greece. And then he went over to Greece and then became a hero of their independence. So, um, you know, and I think you can probably go back even further and see. Yes, multiple. yes, I see what you mean. Of course, Lord Byron, he was an exhibitionist. He was a, a show off. Um, much the same way, right? But I know I don't I I I think I want to see a big difference there because I think his um his his 
celebrity role um, was thrust upon him. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not exonerating him because I think he, he, he did have the strong exhibitionist streak in his nature. But, but I think people it. often want. I mean, you know, I, I'm definitely saying. guilty of this as well. I mean, I show off shamelessly in the classroom, you know, in front of my my students in order to get the. <laughs> able to get their attention and uh, uh, and I you know and I I, um, uh, I I do this um, sometimes by by crass um, physical theater when I was very young um, and like you know I was uh, a, a, a very young um, high school teacher I um, uh, remember one of my very early experiences in the classroom I felt I was I was um, Losing the attention of the class, I climbed up on the desks and walked around the classroom, delivering my 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 my, my class uh, as I strolled around all the and that really got people's attention. Yeah. <laughs> so so sometimes I think that so I think one part of his exhibitionism was kind of that of that sort that he 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 did. Um, contrive, you know, to get people's attention because he had something that he wanted to say. And I think that's the difference. He wasn't attracting the attention for its own sake. And of course, what really made him a celebrity wasn't the effectiveness of his own self-publicism. It was the way people responded mm -hmm. to his his personality and his unconventionality and his his unwillingness to to behave um, uh, um, uh, 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 according to the conventions of his his day. And those were all perfectly honourable. Forms of misbehaviour, yeah, 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 and I that's think that's fair. quite different from just setting out to um, uh, to be conspicuous without having any um, uh, any Intent, yeah. further nobler motive. Oh, I know, you know, I've just been very rude about the Duke of Sussex. I know, I mean, I suppose you know, he or rather probably his wife, because he's really rather an eloquent person himself, would say that <laughs> that, that uh, you know they are trying to to spread uh, messages about um, um, uh, about equality and um, yeah, but but, but that, that's obviously not true, <laughs> um, uh, because if they. Um, you know, if they were, they'd um, they'd act accordingly, not just talk. Well, such is the paradox I think all of the our stuff time. About, yeah. All the stuff about you know feminism and and, and um, uh, uh, anti-racism. I mean, I I I I think that's just part of the self-projection. I don't believe that the self-projection is for the sake of the feminism and the anti-racism. I think the feminism and the anti-racism are there for the sake of self-projection. And I've got no scruple in saying this about, uh, you know, um, um, these, these individuals, although it may seem uncharitable to speak unkindly of them, but, you know, if you set out to be a celebrity, you invite people to say what they think of mm -hmm. you, and I, I'm afraid I don't think very much of them. Oh, well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, yeah, that's a good point, though. There's this, there's the celebrity for celebrity's sake, as opposed to celebrity as a means to an end. I think that's a, a rather good distinction. Um, so, you know, going back, though, I, I maybe this is more just looking for a rhetorical answer to it, but 
you know, I, I do think that there are individuals who are rejecting this type of technological advancement, you know, like um, the, the personal uh, imaginative quality that I like to impose on it is that I want to be, you know, and, and I use the word sapien because I think one, it is hysterical that we label ourselves the wise apes. I think that that's hilarious. Um, but outside of that, uh, you know, I use the distinction to, to some of the points that you make, which is perhaps part of the reason I enjoy your, your ideas so much, is that we are, you know, an animal, uh, so that, that kind of uh, classification. Um, but we, I, I do think that we are evolving and changing. So the, the type of uh, definition or framework I like to put on there is that I want to be the peak sapien. You know, I want to take all the advancements in science and, and you know, let's just say for fitness and ways of, of getting to be, you know, the, the fittest I could possibly be or the, the diet, the, you know, the healthiest I could possibly be. Um, to a certain distinction, and, and you know, I definitely mm. play. Well, with... of course, Elon Musk wants to be immortal. Yeah, well, well, this goes back to my forking question, which is which is where I'm trying to drive it back to. Um, you know, and, and I want to use technology as a tool, but I don't want the technology to drive me, which I think is where one of the ways in which we're going. So, do you think if we are looking in much of the ways that you wrote Millennium of you know a, a thousand years looking back at the start of of two thousand, do you think? A thousand years looking forward, we will have the genesis of, of several different types of, of sapiens. That maybe we have one that's Homo crocodilus or something like that. That's more of a uh, uh, base or reptilian form of ourselves, and another that is a cyborg. Oh, no, I mean, in a thousand years isn't all that long, of course, in evolutionary terms. So it's quite long enough for us to destroy ourselves. That's true. Uh, I'll be give you destroyed. That. I mean, I'm, I'm. Um, you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't put any money on this question still being valid in a thousand years' time. Because we, the we can even add an order of magnitude to it. could easily have, um, have vanished by then. I mean, we've only been around for a couple of hundred thousand years, so we're a very, very short-lived species. But if you look at the rate of change we've experienced yes. in that 200,000 years, it's more... <laughs> You know, than the dinosaurs and yes. all uh, millions and millions of um, of years um, went through. So, uh, our extinction may be more, you know, like that of a microbe mm-hmm. <laughs> in evolutionary terms. Um, we could could easily vanish, um, even in as little as a thousand more years. And when you look at all the stuff we're doing at the moment. To contribute to our own destruction, both you know in the ecological sphere and in our capacity for war um, uh, and our uh, recklessness with technologies that could subvert our humanity. I mean, in all of these these respects, I don't see a lot of reason to hope for a very long continuation of us. <laughs> Oh man, um, you are a very you are strangely on the same wavelength. I, I I worry about that. We don't have we don't have the means to handle the technologies we've we've been given. Okay, so myself, I'm 31, right? We don't have the means to be able to handle the technologies that were given me, let alone the ones we are contriving now. Well, that's an interesting, very interesting observation, and and how how impressive <laughs> that you know, in spite of your youth, <laughs> you've you know, sort of cracked this um, uh, this this. This puzzle, I, I, the, again, this is a bit of a crude oversimplification, but basically, the way we've coped with the problems that we've created for ourselves by inventing successive 
technologies with unforeseen consequences, is that we've invented other technologies right. to cope with the unforeseen right. consequences, which in turn have had unforeseen right. consequences of their own. So we, we're like, you know, the woman who swallowed a spider to catch a fly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and eventually, you know, we'll swallow the horse and we'll be dead, of course. Right. Yeah. I, 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 it's possible that this process of, of generating <laughs> the more unintended consequences may be endless. But common sense suggests that the reverse is true, and that eventually, if you keep throwing out unintended consequences, you will eventually throw out unintended consequences that you don't have a means of capping. But I mean, in a way, that would be great, because the, the, the like, more likely possibility is that we'll be destroyed by something out, completely outside our control, something that we haven't contrived for ourselves, like climate change mm -hmm. or... A, 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 a new plague mm -hmm. or a meteor or a solar so, flare a, 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 or a me media malfunction you know a, a, um, a very powerful robot that's been misprogrammed to yeah, kill humans yeah. <laughs> or um, uh, you know I mean then of course there are all sorts of you know atmospheric and, 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 and hyper atmospheric um, uh Asteroid. I mean, you know, there's, there's any number of possible disasters that might wipe us out that we actually have no influence over at all. And we greatly overestimate our influence over climate change and over disease. These are two um, areas which ultimately are beyond our control because ultimately climate depends on the sun and we can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, the disease environment depends on microbial evolution, which we can try and anticipate and we can try and respond to. And so far, we've just about managed. But we've seen how dangerous it is and how narrowly we've escaped some of the, um, some of the consequences of microbial evolution in historic times. So the likelihood that any of these things will throw up a, a terminal disaster uh, seems to me to be, you know, at least um, sufficient to bear in mind. We definitely can't discount any of them. Yeah, um, you said that you're not a betting man. I, I am, and I, I have to try to uh, temper myself with that type of sensibilities. But if I was to bet, I similar to what we were saying. Yeah, but unfortunately, John, you won't be able to cash in on your earnings. Oh you no, that's quite all right. <laughs> no, it's just uh, intellectual uh, gymnastics, if anything. What I'm about to say. Um, but, you know, I, I actually think that most likely what is going to be our undoing, and like we were talking about earlier with um, how modern technology allows the state to have more centralized control and availability and reach into each of the individual, and how I said that we can juxtapose that by an individual actually having increasing power of, of destruction from the individual. I think it's going to be an individual that perhaps is our undoing in, in what you described of being able to create a, you know, a, a robot or some type of mechanism that either intentionally or unintentionally causes some type of, of catastrophic uh, chain you know, and reaction or something of those sort. I think the, you know, the, the more that our technology advances, the more that it's, it's easily to go awry from one person shifting a molecule or something. Yes, I mean, if, 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 I, if I understand you right, I mean, I, you, you something in your mind is that the, 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 it's in the interest of the state to have very simple, very powerful means of controlling people. Yes, it is. Yeah. And the more effective the state is in creating such resources 
the more likely it is that a malfunction will be very destructive. I think that's unquestionably true. Yes, I think so, yes. And I, and I think it's more that both our society and our state becomes further and further away from our, I'm going to put it this way, evolutionary fulfillment, right? Like, I, 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 we talked about this last time, and this is something I think about a lot and something that I, I, I harrow back and forth, and I was actually writing about this the other day, you know, in meditations, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, um, I often think of it as a propaganda piece now rather than meditations, but regardless, um, you know, he talks about, you know, the birds chirp and they don't complain about getting out of bed, but, you know, uh, us as humans would rather stay in the comfort of our covers, but, you know, shouldn't we be trying to seize the day and, you know, arise and, and um, seek what it is, our, our, our cause or our purpose, similar to, you know, the Blue Jays songbirds, um, but I, I think that we have gone so far away from what fulfills us um, that I, I often think that, uh, you know, um, the more that we have gone to way of maybe even being grown up without even having any sense of what fulfills us, no sense of physical labor, of hard work, of, of intellectual challenges or, or problem solving really is what I mean by that. Um, I think that some of the more of these dystopic psychologies kind of come up and you start seeing the cropping of those and mass shootings and things like that. I think that that is a symptom of lack of fulfillment or, you know, evolution, evolutionary fulfillment maybe is the way of, of putting it, um, that we're further and further driving ourselves mad with these societies that are so disjointed. Well, I, I, I certainly think that, you know, one of the, the, the right name is of complacency is obviously one of the dangers that we haven't specified so far. And mm. in a way, I think you are, you're talking about a kind of of um, uh, of complacency, the idea that um, uh, leisure, <laughs> the purpose of leisure, which you, you know Aristotle thought <laughs> the purpose of leisure was you know to give you space and time for, for creativity, for energy, for actually doing things. That that the the, the the whole point of of leisure was to create a space for activity. We now think it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. For, for leisure now is the, the bliss of you know, not having to do anything right. <laughs> except vegetate. And obviously that's quite the wrong way to think about leisure. If you want you know, to f- face the problems of the world, you know, God willing, even perhaps solve them or postpone their, their um, inevitable um, climax. And I, you know, I just think of um, um, when I was a little boy... Uh, I think one of the, um, the many um, incidents of, of life which made me um, uh, a, a terrible nuisance to my school teachers <laughs> was that I, I very early decided that um, everything they were doing was hypocritical. Um, and and amongst the many reasons I had for 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 this childish perception, also the fact that we used to sing all these these hymns at at morning assembly about uh, you know how marvelous the strenuous um, life uh, is. Um, um, Not for ease our prayer shall be, but for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously. <laughs> and there's all this, you know, that same um, uh, hymn talks about you know, how we shouldn't pray for, for, for comfort or smite 
the living fountain from the rock. <laughs> actually, you know, everything that we do is actually designed for the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that, um, I mean, I always wear a collar and a tie and, um, uh, and a suit and I pride myself on, you know, defying comfort. Um, when when I when I went to Rome to give a lecture at the Pontifical Academy, I stayed in the the Dome of Saint Marte, which is where the Pope now lives. But in those days, one of its main functions was it used to house the cardinals when they came for conclave, and, and it was very interesting because it was the cleanest building I've ever been in. <laughs> and you could sometimes you could see why because occasionally you would look around a corner and you would see the wisp. Of the nuns' habits of disappearing silently. <laughs> they, they, they had these, these people who kept it absolutely spotless. And it was also, you know, very, it was very well equipped, but it was amazingly austere, you know. And so no decoration except crucifix on the wall in my room and the hardest bed I have ever slept on. And I thought to myself, well, thank God, you know, when these cardinals come, they don't make them comfortable. Because if they did, we'd never get a new pope. <laughs> Uh, so, I'm sorry, well, that's a rather silly example. But the point that's is that comfort yeah. is very, you know, hostile to achievement. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and I just think we've ceased to value um, discomfort and, and um, uh, we've ceased to value, you know, the productiveness of all these things like anxiety, which we now consider to be a sort of mental infirmity, instead of what it really is, which is a very healthy state, which encourages you to change and to do better. Um, so I, 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 I think, and I'd say my overall word for the, all this stuff is complacency, and I think that's another threat that we really need to be aware of. I don't want everybody to be uncomfortable and anxious all the time, but I just think you need to be aware that you can overdo it and that we need to set, set limits on it in our own lives if we're going to be um, um, successful in, in changing ourselves and therefore in changing our world. Yeah, and, and going back to um, our discussion earlier too, uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in... The, I'll use the word myth, but in in the myths of, of religion or, or or the like, you know, and, and the seventh day, you know, resting, right, and those type of thing of keeping holy Sabbath, and you know, you work for six days and then you ha- you earn that day of rest. I think is is um, one of of virtue in that, and and I also think oh yes, but of course that rest again it was rest in the sort of Aristotelian sense. Right. So you you're actually doing something. You're worshiping. You're thinking. You're right. you're taking. To the time out from the the daily distractions of life in order to concentrate on what's really important. So, so it's a very positive, not a negative kind of rest. Yeah, which which once again, I think going back to your your comments on tradition, I think is is incredibly important. You know, and, and bringing us back if it's family and community and having that type of tradition and and framework to, and may to have I that. Point out, you wore your Sunday best instead of slumping around. And um, oh yes. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. I wear jeans and, and a button-up every day, even when if I don't work. And my wife sometimes gives me a hard time because it'll be 9 o'clock at night and I still haven't put on comfortable clothes and I just I can't bring myself to do it mostly because it makes me feel like I'm giving up on the day. But um, And then the other part of it that uh, I think is, is, is good, I think, is, is it the serenity prayer? 
uh, you know, give me the, the strength and the serenity to uh, overcome my circumstances, not necessarily to uh, have easy circumstances in which I'm facing, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of that is getting lost these days, you know, and I think that some of that has to do with, I mean, maybe secularism becoming its own type of religion, you know, kind of, again, calling back, um, or just, you know, this, this love of, of comfort. Um, yeah, well, you know, we obviously, um, um, there are people who drive themselves too hard, and there are, you know, yes. essentially ascetics who've taken discomfort to um, extremes that most of us just wouldn't be able to to handle. But I mean, I think everybody's got his or her own proper level, and really, if you're going to lead the good life, you, you mustn't exceed your proper level of of rest and comfort. Right, which goes back to us trying to find our individual spectrum, like, you know, if, you know, regardless of your upbringing or your challenges or whatever you were given, you know, you know what's best to challenge yourself, which which is also what makes it the most difficult, is that you are kind of both uh, the, the marble as well as the sculptor. Ah, um, uh, well, this is very interesting because you're now really beginning to talk about freedom. Yes. And, um... um uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've always welcomed sources of discipline, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I think, um, I value them as aids to freedom. So freedom is is, is always going to be the highest, the highest aspiration, the highest, the highest good. Mm -hmm. If if you don't do what you do because you do it freely, then there's no merit in it. I, I like that. That's, yeah, well, I think freedom is definitely uh, a paradox. That's for sure. Um, have you ever heard of Heather Hying or Brett Weinstein? No. Oh, they wrote a book, um, The Evolution. I haven't read it yet. It's on my list, and I wanted to just posit it to you to, to investigate. It's um, The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. They're both evolutionary biologists, and they have this public, you know, this new book they came out with, which is essentially how do you understand our our base evolutionary impulses, and how can you best to you know uh, use them to navigate the world in which we live in, which is a lot of what you were just saying about how anxiety is a rather useful input, or um, you know the thoughts that I have of trying to be the the best that I can be, right? Well, I I, I mean. It, 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 yeah, I, I, I guess I, I ought to read the books. It sounds as though I'd be very sympathetic to it. I mean, I, th I think there is always a danger that a, a lot of people who look back to the hunter-gatherer past mythologize it as a sort of golden age, I mean, particularly in a political sense, you know, it becomes a sort of Rousseauan age of primitive innocence of sublime um, uh, 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 um, pre- state even sort of pre-social freedom uh, and equality, which I don't think it ever was. But I've always thought that societies that are um, faithful <laughs> to this tradition that have remained foraging societies on the whole of the rest of the world was turned to these, these, these very um, costly um, ways of, of life that are, are, are based on 
continually introducing new technologies and uh, producing vast amounts of stuff that we don't really need. I always thought that the guys who stuck with the foraging life are really the clever ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we should we should regard them as more successful because they've they've lasted for such a long time and they've maintained this 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 way of life with with you know relatively little um sacrifice of their their traditions and that's what they wanted to do. They've been very successful in delivering their objectives. Whereas the rest of us haven't <laughs> we've continually had to give up on one set of objectives and embrace another one in order just in order to keep keep going. So in, in, there's a definitely a sense in which I, 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 I share these authors' um, use of, of the hunter-gatherer past as a sort of model or pattern of life. But I, 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 I'm, I'm also very alert to the danger of romanticising mm-hmm. it, which is folly, because then you're using as your model and your pattern something which is false. Yeah, I'll send you the information. I, I have the book on my queue to read. I'm, I'm interested in it for a lot of the ways that you talk about. I, well, one thing to say, though, that I think is interesting is how the hunter-gatherer past probably, in all likelihood, had more times of, of leisure and less stress than we have now, mostly because of the trappings of our uh, reality, I guess, that we've built up around us, um, which I think is interesting. Yes, of course, most people don't realize that... Um Paleolithic people, Ice Age people, had more leisure. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because they lived in a world of such abundance that they were able to um, get all the calories they needed, according to the computations of Marshall Silence and Lewis Vinford back in the 60s and 70s. They sort of did the math, and they worked out that pretty much you could, you could get everything you needed in two days of work. Which uh, we which... now have... Well, many people are working seven days a week. Yeah, well, and, and something that I, once again, thinking about trying to be the peak sapien, uh, is I bet that there are ways in which we can uh, bring that back in a lot of ways. I think if we try to use less chemical agriculture and more, you know, what they call, like, there's this guy, Mark Shepard, who's a great job of it. Um, he calls it restoration art agriculture. Other people call it regenerative agriculture. Other people call it forest agriculture of essentially creating an ecosystem that perpetuates itself. And then we just know when to come in and move, move things along. If it's grazing cattle or grazing pigs or picking up acorns or, you know, uh, whatnot. Um, I think that we could do that. Um, but then again... Yes, it, I mean, but I, I, I hesitate, <laughs> you know, to, to um, trigger this nirvana because, I, I mean, I think that there's no point <laughs> in increasing leisureness people have got something good to do with it and, yeah, and yeah. at the moment you know I, I, I think the most leisure gets abused people abuse it for activities that do them no good okay well alright so I'll do bring the world it. no good yeah 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 and I'll bring it back to this which is probably why I appreciated your lecture series on ideas so much is the Victor Hugo quote uh, what is what is more powerful than all of the uh, armies in the world stacked on top of each other, and that's an idea whose time has come. Um, I always juxtapose it with saying, you know, what's the second most powerful thing? And it's an idea whose time, whose time has yet to pass. So I, I think that, yeah, um, nice. you know, what I am trying to say, and this is sparking a new idea of thinking about things, because I think one of the fascinating things in tech, um, I have 
I'm in tech. I make my living in tech. I've, I've done everything from artificial intelligence, like pretty much any permutation of tech you can think of. And something I find so absolutely maddening uh, with the tech culture is how much they romanticize certain things. Um, you know, and one of them is some people for their leisure time go and work on a farm, right? And I think that's great. I, and, and the thing I think that's great about it is because you know, they're understanding what real work is, I suppose. And by real work, I mean physical work, right? Because I think there are, is a lot of mental work and it is incredibly difficult to stare at a computer screen um, and whatnot and the puzzles you have to solve and all of that. Um, but there's a deeper pleasure that one gets from working with our hands. And I think if we can somehow make that the idea who has come, you know, I think that our leisure time might be more fulfilled, but also maybe perhaps it would be grazing through a, a field and picking up a bunch of acorns. Um, and perhaps that is something that we find more leisure out of because we can take our time in doing it. Um, but also it, it could be more fulfilling because of what it is, you know, bringing back and, and kind of an abundance therein. Um, I, I, it is a romantic idea. I, I do understand that. But in some ways, I think if we don't see some kind of romanticism to those type of things, I don't think they'll ever come at the same time. I, I think they're absolutely necessary because in one instance, rather flatly, I think if we continue going down chemical and mono, monoculture agriculture, I think it's just going to continue to be our undoing. I suppose the most famous of my predecessors, if I could, um, if it's not uh, immodest of me to put it like that, uh, uh, um, as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, was G.K. Chesterton. Oh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of G.K. Chesterton, actually. Well, I, I, so am I. You know, I think if, I always recommend him to students of mine who have difficulty in writing fluently. <laughs> 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 I say, you know, so, you know, read a few pages of G.K. Chesterton and try to write something in imitation of his. Oh, my gosh. Like, because he, he, no one had a better sense of the perfect word, you know, mm. was able to just to, to, to choose the, the best word for whatever it was he wanted to say. Um, Joseph Conrad also as well. Uh, well, I don't want to get distracted okay, by yeah, Joseph yeah, Conrad, but of course he's a very interesting case because of course his native language wasn't English. Right, right, right. And therefore, and I'm, you know, I, I, I always think that in many ways it's an advantage to write not in your native language because it yeah. makes you much more careful and yeah, yeah. it makes you think much more about your choice of words than you yeah. otherwise would. Uh, but Chesterton, of course, was writing in his native language, and he just had us all made a most, most divine gift for, for choosing. Uh, he just had a, 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 um, an unerring sense of what words are for, uh, how, what their potential is. Um, but I mention in this context because, of course, he had this back to the land movement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, which he propagated quite, um, quite fiercely, but which I think was um, hopelessly romantic. I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to it, and I think the idea that, um, you know, the physical um, labour is, is improving, you know, not only the body, but also the mind. I mean, all that, it's also St. Benedict's idea, mm -hmm. elaborare, estorare. Uh, I, I, however, uh, it's definitely not for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I come from a, a family of, of um, farmers. My, my, because my, my father was 
um, you know, passionately interested in cows. We were driving around the countryside where you had to keep stopping to look at every time you passed a herd of, of cows so you could, could study them. You know. And I, I'm afraid I, I, I could never get into cows. You know. And uh, the family farm is now run very, very efficiently and brilliantly by my niece. But I mean, it's definitely not something I would ever get involved in. Um, and so I think that um, uh, it is horses for courses, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cows for courses. You've got to have... Is it so that the, if you had just your, you can't adjust your vocation to certain kinds of self improvement. That's okay, but you need to find alternatives. Mm-hmm. So the farm, yes; the land, yes; the physical labour, yes; the work with your hands, yes. But you know there may be other ways in which you can use your literature profitably. The important thing is always you know to use it. Use it positively, say that um, beyond the, the hours that you need for total sleep and total relaxation, everybody needs a bit of that, but beyond those, there's hours. I mean, for God's sake, when you're on your butt, <laughs> mentally get off it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that as a statement of life. You're, you're full of quips that I, I, I enjoy and unpack later. Um, probably steal one of them for the title of this episode. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, uh, well, just to hang on G.K. Chesterton for a minute. Minute. Have you ever read his uh, novel, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday? Oh yeah, cool. Oh my God, I think that that is a perfect example of a political treatise of our time, uh, where you know the. Well, how very interesting you say of our time, because you know people often say that Chesterton was ahead of his time. In yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that novel, and I don't think anybody's ever really ahead of um, his time. I think that's a paradox that doesn't really make any sense, but. Um, uh, but he saw things about his own time that uh, are commonalities with our own. Yes, yeah, you know, almost like the seed was was planted of, uh, you know, where the, um, you know, in that case, the uh, person that is starting the investigation is actually the one that is ultimately being investigated, um, and then it turns into a nightmare and uh, almost like a, some type of, uh, you know, acid trip or hallucinatory trip at the end of it, which I think is just which is brilliant, the way that he writes that. I think it's, it's great. Um, so I, I want to ask you something. So, you know, we were um, talking about before about my fascination with the Diluvian myths of, you know, the different flood myths and, and whatnot, and having written uh, Civilizations, um, which, by the way, Civilizations and Millennium and also Out of Our Minds, I am having a hell of a time finding an audio book in the States, but I'm going to continue trying to you do that. You are having a hard time doing what? Oh, finding an audio book version of it in the States. If I was to be in uh, UK, I could find it quite easily. But anyways, regardless, uh-huh. that was just an aside, because um, I'm dying to read them. But um, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, the Ice Age comes, and there's a, a, a bunch of... Um, controversial controversial anomalies when it comes to like mapping and things like that do you think it is potential that there was some type of reset that happened coming out of the last ice age where perhaps we did achieve some type of level of sophistication i'm not saying technological sophistication but some type of civilization that then there was a reset that comes from out of the last ice age because some of the interesting geological evidence um, you know, like in North, the Pacific Northwest in uh, Washington is that there, there was, they're starting to see evidence of a large massive flood that potentially, uh, a nuclear glass, potentially there was a, an asteroid that hit the ice sheet that caused some type of massive 
flooding and things like that. Or um, if you're familiar with Gobekli Tepe and how and that archaeology there, that how some of the the oldest you know, it's resetting the age of when they thought that some of these giant structures were created. And mm. the paradox there is that the older structures are actually better craftsmen and craft better, you know, uh, put together than the later ones. So my curiosity and, and I guess a, a controversial subject that I wanted to ask is, do you think that perhaps we achieved something that was then reset coming out of the last ice age? Yes, I, I guess there are two questions here. First, just really about what... Um, people, I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're talking globally here. Yeah, 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 yes, of, yes. So that we mustn't underestimate the diversity of yes. of ways of life in different parts of the world in the the um, the Ice Age. But still, there were more commonalities and more continuities than there are in culture across the world mm-hmm. in more recent times. I know that's unquestionably the case. So maybe, you know, it's, it's okay to generalise with a little bit more freedom... <laughs> about the Ice Age uh, than it would be about more recent historical periods. So with that caveat, I would say um, the first question is what did, really, what, you know, what, what, what did people achieve in the Ice Age? Because when you talk about a reset, you're kind of um, assuming there's something to reset. Um, and the second question is, was there a break in continuity I, you know, I don't think it's necessary to invoke asteroids or floods or whatever. I mean, the climate change uh, is transformative mm-hmm. for the environment. And so, you know, we've got a prima facie basis for mm-hmm. asking a question about a reset in that sense. Um, and so on the first of those questions, I think it's very obvious that, that um, for most of the the history of prehistoric scholarship and paleoarchaeology, we greatly underestimated what people did in the Ice Age. Um, you know, I mean, they they built fantastic structures, they created fantastic food surpluses, they they had all this leisure in which they they. Um, Created marvelous art. Um, I know Picasso said that nobody had painted better since the the um, Paleolithic Paddy- 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 wall painting artists. No, no one had, until him, <laughs> and he included Raphael. He said they painted better than Raphael. Um, That's interesting. I can see the influence now that you say that. I never, I never heard that quote. It's interesting. Well, I mean, I. Again, I think we're perhaps a little bit like Lord Byron because the soul was a bit of a show-off. And uh, but anyway, <laughs> I love that. Though, there's, there's a lot of truth in it. I mean, they were they were fantastic artists. They also did wonderful sculptures. But um, uh, uh, they were also um, uh, politically very inventive. You know, I mean, we've got increasing evidence of the diversity of political solutions mm-hmm. of their societies adopted in spite of the fact that there are many environmental similarities. You've got a lot of differences of culture developing, especially political culture. Um, uh, and, the, you know, I mean, I think that they were very obviously uh, masters of symbolic notation. Um, you know, we think of writing as something that was uh, very late development amongst agrarian peoples. Well, it may be that writing in the sense that we understand it now was such a late 
development, but the evidence that there are symbolic meanings encoded in repeated and patterned ways and Paleolithic works that have survived seems to me incontrovertible. Um, um, obviously, they were very creative and imaginative in their thinking about worlds other than the one that we inhabit, uh, spirit worlds, worlds, the ancestors, the dead, the gods. Um, again, there's, 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 the evidence is, is, is very sparse, but I think unmistakable that, they, that there was a lot of um, a very impressive thinking going on. Um, so yes, you know, I mean, I, I've, I absolutely don't jib at talking about Ice Age civilization because although they didn't have formal civilization, they said, "Hey, you know, ways of organizing life that we now speak of as cities." Um, they were able within the, um, the, the 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 settlements and 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 life units that they 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 built. Um, to do um, everything that we think of as a civilized behavior. Um, and then, uh, obviously, what, you know, we call it the Ice Age because it was, uh, it was cold. <laughs> so what brings it to an end is climate change. The, the resumption of global warming is climate change. Um, goes in waves or cycles or oscillations, so you've got warming periods and followed by cooler ones and um, we're at the moment we're in a very intense phase of a warming period but really that warming period started about 20,000 years ago and it's been going on with interruptions but fairly brief interruptions or fluctuations um, ever since and obviously you know when when climate changes you have to change your way of life along with it I wish people would all acknowledge that now. <laughs> um, and, um, and therefore you do get a reset. Yeah, I mean, uh, as always with, with these um, periods, which I think are properly called periods of crisis because things can go either way. You know, for those guys, climate change could bury them, could kill them off, or they could adjust. And very crudely, I could say, you can adjust to... Um, the end of the Ice Age in one of two ways. You can cling to your existing way of life and follow the ice as it retreats, you know, as the world warms. And a lot of people did that and they did it perfectly successfully. Or you can stay where you are in terms of your geographical location and devise new ways of coping with a warmer environment. And very crudely, this means taking much more, putting much more effort into the conservation of your existing food resources. And very broadly speaking, the guys who did that ended up practicing agriculture because mm -hmm. that was the, the best way of ensuring that the plants and animals on which they depended were still going to be there. They just had, they just had to take a lot more care of them. Um, so, um, uh, so if that's a, a reset, then yes, I mean, you know, I, 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 because I think you then can see people then picking up on a lot of these things like being able to produce great art and great thinking and so on. Very interesting, I think it takes a very long time for many societies to achieve that 
that reset you know cross the threshold from just surviving just keep keep ticking over to really doing a lot of new and exciting things and that's one of the reasons why I think that although um um, a lot of these, all the early agrarian societies that emerged in the, the, the period of global warming, the Mesolithic and Neolithic eras, uh, I think a lot of those societies were very impressive in many ways. They were all very conservative, mm-hmm. and in many cases really didn't produce a lot of new ideas for literally thousands of years. <laughs> so to some extent, the reset takes quite a long time. Um... But then, of course, when it resumes, we've got we 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 find new innovation, uh, new thinking. It, it 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 starts multiplying at a much faster rate than it ever had, as far as we can tell, um, when the world was in that very cold phase that preceded um, global warming. Um, so uh, that's a very long way, of, way, 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 winded way of saying yes and no. But I yeah. think that's the answer. The answer is yes and no. I appreciate that, though. That's interesting. Um, I think you know Egypt is a great you know that geographical area we now label as Egypt, and both in ancient Egypt is an interesting place to kind of look at this because both that area in the Ice Age was much more lush than it is now. It was it was it was, it was practically a jungle and. Somehow that, and also it was one of the first places that we saw our modern conception of civilization kind of crop out of. So perhaps that is the a good a good case study for your exact point, which is perhaps there was a, a reset and it took a rather long time to get there. Um, yes, yeah, so I think Egypt is a very good good case. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't static. Um, if you know, we talk about sort of pharaonic Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't. Uh, um, um, static, and you do you do get you know some innovations and um, that you can trace in the in the art and in the in the texts. Um, but the 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 really remarkable thing about it is how um, are the continuities which embrace this tremendously mm-hmm. long period. And I think you know it is fair to say that um, uh, and 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 in in many ways also very impressive is the way the the basic structures survive terrible crises, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the invasions of the Hyksos and the crisis of the Bronze Age. Egypt kind of emerges from this, and it's still recognisably the same policy, the same system, the same economy, the same religion. All those things are the same as they were before the crisis, and that does show both great strength, but also visceral conservatism which is not conducive to innovation and the innovations that happen happen in spite of the conservatism of the society in which they occurred yeah i think egypt is to your point is also a good uh study or idea to uh political or cultural geography in which i think a lot of their culture that emerged out of there was because of the geography in which they had, which then also kind of led them to conservatism, you know, the Nile floods rather, uh, rather consistently, you know, the, it it flows, the the river flows north, but the winds, you know, flow south. So you can have this type of innovation of, um, you know, transporting goods and, and, and things back and forth. And yes, I suppose one of the things that greatly assisted the durability of pharaonic Egypt was that it encompassed uh, two very strikingly different environments, that of the Delta and that of the, um, the Nile Valley 
um, uh, say you know the Delta is uh, um, uh, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very moist environment from the Nile that is very arid environment so you could get different kinds of products and these different ecologies provided complementary economies, complementary types of produce. And I think something very similar is, is, you know, accounts for the durability of, 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 um, uh, of China, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously it's very different under the hand <laughs> from the way it had been under the, um, uh, um, um, under the Shan or even the Zhao, but it's, it's, it is recognisably the record, very strong recognisable continuities. And again, China had the advantage of encompassing two very diverse environments, the Yellow River and the Yangtze. One is very dry, one is very moist. They produce different types of food, different types of grains, millet in the north, rice in the south. So you've always got a fallback position. It takes both areas to be devastated by a blight before the civilization can be be interrupted, and um, and obviously these things are are critically um, are critically important, uh, and perhaps make the difference because I mean all the societies of this era are conservative, all the agrarian societies are conservative in similar ways, and some of them survive, and some of them don't, and the difference probably between those that do and those that don't is that the, those that don't have a more fragile ecology. It's not that they lack the will to keep going. The will is the conservatism is 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 very strong, I think, in all these these all societies, all the growing societies of the time. But there are a couple that have very privileged environments. Mm. And those are Egypt and China. That's interesting. Yeah, the Inca is also another interesting one as well because of the different... Uh, the Inca? Yeah, I would say... Well, we're talking about very much later period. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, and shorter, yes. Hegemony. 100%. But the, the Inca, absolutely, you know, environment is critical to the success. The Inca are just one of a, a very long series of hegemonic societies in the Andean yes. region, which for a very long time, I mean, probably from the first millennium BC onwards, all practice a very similar basic strategy, which was to exploit the economic diversity of these, these, this very mountainous region in order to exchange products between different ecozones and therefore keep populations right. going and able to survive, especially in an you know, unstable region which is very susceptible to the, the um, calamities caused by reversals of the El Nino um, right. um, phenomenon. Um, so in, in those, those, uh, those areas, um, you've got a very, this very abrupt topography in which you've got, got very precipitate mountains, and therefore you've got different environments as you climb the slopes of the mountains. You've also got different environments from side to side of a single valley according to the, the incidence of the rainfall and the sunshine. And so in a relatively short space, you can, you can grow lots and lots of different types of crops 
and you can exchange them. And that, that, that's the basis, really, of all of these um, Andean empires. It remains, really, to some extent, the basis of the last of these great Andean empires, which is the Spanish Empire. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and and and, they, and really, you know, one should consider them all um, together in order fully to understand them. Nevertheless, none of them is actually very long lived. I mean, right, the strategy is ever repeated. Right, but no single stage keeps going for a very long time, and that's a big difference from Egypt and China. And I, I guess maybe, I mean, again, this is. It would be crudely oversimplifying, but maybe one of the reasons why politics are much more unstable in the uh, Andes than they are in Egypt or China is because um, managing that degree of complexity is much more difficult than managing the really binary nature of the environments in China and Egypt. Wow, that's an awfully thought-provoking point. It's making me think more about the the political ecology as well. Oh, that's fascinating. I could see that. Um, and the turbulence also with the different variants in the weather is is much greater in the Indian region than it is in. Yes, I mean, there's you know there's a, a a very strong body of opinion that, for example, the Moche who were were one of these civilizations, although they were located somewhat at a somewhat lower altitude. Um, were really effectively wiped out by some particularly intractable confluence of Nino events. Because oh. the thing about El Nino, as you know, is that it, it's 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 very unpredictable. It happens roughly twice a decade. <laughs> you, can, you know, you can go through a long period without any El Nino events, and then you can go through another period where you just get one after the other. And sometimes. You know the 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 rapid recurrence of a series of such events can overstrain the resources of a um, a community to to survive. That's interesting. Um, it's interesting you bring up China too, because I was read I read a lot of Will Durant lately. Um, I find him quite lovely. Um, and one of the things he he mentioned, I think he was writing it in like the late thirties or early forties. I, I can't remember exactly when it was penned. But essentially, you know, well, at the time that he was writing it, China was definitely in uh, not the state that it's in today. And he, he says rather flippantly... Sorry, what, what period? Oh, I think he wrote it in, like, the late 30s. Oh, you say... 1930s. And so he's talking about China in the 30s? Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, China at that point was, was not at all a member in the world stage. But he says rather flippantly, give it 100 years, and China will, you know, find its, its uh, legacy and rise up again. Um, and I thought that that was rather thought-provoking, and he talks a lot about some of the, the history that you say and whatnot, um, and, and I guess what I... Well, of course, Napoleon said China was a sleeping giant. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's um, interesting. And at that time, she wasn't all that sleeping. I mean, right, you know, right, this, right. this was relatively early in the sort of, I don't know, the aristational, stagnational quiescence of China, which was still, you know, expanding well into the 18th century, but then it ha- has had a, a long period of under achievement since then and periodically, you know, people have always said, well, you know, just give it a bit of time. <laughs> I've said that myself, of course. Um, I said that when I first started writing about these these things back in the nineteen um in the nineteen eighties and I'm still saying it now and perhaps China still hasn't quite got her act together and I you know, there are still possibilities 
of things going wrong. Um, I mean, I still don't think China is a very well-run country. Mm. Um, and the political mismanagement, which is a big part of the reasons for this long period of Chinese underachievement, they still haven't really sorted that out, in my opinion. No, it's been there are other things that could go wrong yeah. um, with China. But again, you know, if you look on the, lo- the long-term historical record, China's the best equipped of existing states in the world to be the hegemonic superpowers, much better equipped than the United States is. And the United States has really, I think we all know the American century is over, the United States has receded from its role as a great sort of uh, um, globally hegemonic superpower. Um, And the the overwhelming likelihood is that China will take over that role. How much of that do you think has to do like, like my my question is not just about China in particular, more just broadly speaking, especially since someone as yourself is so learned on civilizations as well as um, time and memoriam, I suppose. Um, how much of a of a that legacy with China or other empires, I suppose, um, is influenced by their historical legacy? Do you think that they're in China's case? Do you think their historical legacy of you know, going back as, as far as, as they have to a central state, you know, control or just kind of that culture and, and history. Do you think yes. it still reverberates? <laughs> well, it's a very good question to ask about China because, of course, one of the, the recurrent features of China is you get these uh, sort of moments, the two classic moments, I mean, the moments which best exemplified are, of course, the, you know, the Qin um, invasion when when you know, they supposedly burnt all the books and they rejected Confucianism and they introduced this sort of legalist, so-called legalist um, regime in which the, the uh, which obedience and, and um, the good of the same, the, the only things that mattered and the individuality was crushed and so on and so forth. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we get a similar thing when the communists take over yes. and you get a similar sort of this abjuration of the past and it's now, you know, so now Marx is instead of Confucius is the, the leading light and, and you get a similar, I mean, we'll see Mao's Cultural Revolution, it's very similar to the Qin Revolution, you also get book burning, mm-hmm. you get the immolation of a whole class of intellectuals and so on and so forth uh, and yet <laughs> the amazing thing is that nothing happens <laughs> That the continuities survive, and um, of course, you know, uh, far from burning all the books, the Chin uh, uh, didn't interrupt the 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 continuities of of Chinese uh, intellectual life and tradition, which are all all survive. And indeed, in many ways, the Chin, in their brief period of of rule in in China, upheld them. Um, you know, the sources exaggerate the the extent of the the uh, well. Could we use the word reset? The 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 the, um, the revolution. Uh, and the same thing is true with um, with Mao. You know, I mean, actually, China's never read it in Marxist. I think the evidence that Mao never actually read Marx <laughs> is really quite convincing. Um, and, um, uh, um, and, and, you know, sort of Confucius continued to be much more influential and still is. And then we got, you know, the Deng Xiaoping 
um, reversion to a, a, a more traditional sort of economic um, setup in in China and uh, I don't know the current ideological language coming out China again represents itself as if it were very novel and different but I don't actually see any difference on the ground so I think that um, um, you know it's a, China's a very good example of how um, uh, revolution is often just a show mm. um, and continuities Always, you know, to, to be very powerful, even if people are actively trying to interrupt them, but it's more common for these ostensible interruptions to be really covert ways of continuing what had always been the, 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 the direction in which things were going. You could say the same with the Russian Revolution, you know, which really, uh, the bourgeoisie survived under a different name. It came to be called the Communist Party. Right. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, after all the stuff about international, Stalin reverted to talking about Hobie Mother Russia. <laughs> right. and, and of course, after the communist regime disappeared, all these continuities became perfectly apparent. They all sort of seeped out of holes in the woodwork. And, um, um, and, um, uh, and, and we've now, I think, adjusted in the West to thinking of, of Russia as a country where um, the, the problems of dealing with her are always the same <laughs> because those continuities are much stronger than any of the rhetoric which uh, purports to challenge them and to justify changing them. So, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, the word revolution literally means going back to where you were. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I and, suppose and I never it, thought of it that. Turns out, <laughs> turns out to be a very good description of what usually happens. Yeah, it's almost a way of... French revolution. Oh, well, I'm sorry, don't, don't, we don't need any more examples. Well, no, I mean, I was actually thinking mm. the French revolution. It, it's another one. It's, it's, in many ways, it's a way of... Mm. In- well, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. It's the way that um, um, a, a great 19th century French intellectual summed it up. How, how does that translate to? Sorry? What does that translate to? Uh, the more things change, the more they oh, turn out to be the same. Yes, the more, yes that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's said a lot. Um, it, it's almost a revolution in a lot of ways as a way of in, uh, speeding up the status quo or cementing it in many ways. Um, do you know who Michael Hanneman is? He wrote The Framers Revolution. Sorry? Michael, the, 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 what, what Michael uh, Hanneman, he wrote the book The Framers Revolution. No, I haven't. Uh, he talks uh, about, a lot about uh, the American Revolution being one of a way of cementing the, the social elite as opposed to being the type of libertas that it was uh, you know, purported to be. Wow, well, yes. I mean, again, you, you know... Um, 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 uh, tell me about it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it, you've only got to look at things like, you know, slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, 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 had it not been for the American Revolution, slavery would have disappeared from this country 60 years mm-hmm. or so before it did. Um, a formal slavery, because slavery is still around, and particularly in. in Prostitution oh, well, yes. and in the 
the exploitation of underdocumented immigrant labour. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we 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 kid ourselves if we think we've we've abolished slavery. We've abolished it formally, um, but it would have been formally abolished much earlier mm-hmm. if the British had remained um, uh, in charge. Um, um, uh, democracy, well, you know, um, uh, uh, depends what you mean by by democracy. Of course, universal male suffrage was introduced in all the states of the Union until 1842, which right. is ten years after the Great Reform Act in in Britain. So, I, 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 I you know, I think there's a lot to be said for the the view that the uh, the American Revolution was a conservative revolution designed to defend the power of the existing elite against um, uh, erosion from um, increasing interference by the imperial authorities, much of which would have been in a more liberal direction than that evinced by the early American Republic. I think treatment of Native Americans is another mm-hmm. example because, of course, to the, for the British Empire's purposes, it was very important to conserve the Native Americans as a buffer against the, the first the French and then the, the, the Spanish, whereas it was in the interests of the patriots, as we call them, to exterminate Native Americans or expel them. Right, no, I think it's exactly... He calls it a conservative revolution. So you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, yeah, it's... it's, it's yeah, that's not the whole story, obviously. No, 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 no. Uh, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's, one of the, it's a part of the story which uh, uh, Americans commonly overlook. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, it's almost taboo to a, a point of, of not... Because uh, we idealize it. We, well, it's a myth. We created a myth. Um, uh, Yes, I mean, I, I'm not so, you know, I, I, not ideologically committed to any form of, of government. I think uh, that, you know, that um, uh, for forms of government, as Alexander Pope said, let fools contest whatever is best administered is best. But I once wrote a, a piece, I think it was for CNN, about um, how um, um, in the United States the, the Republic is, is idolised as the you know, it's the best form of God. If you want to be a United States citizen, when you're asked the question, the t- citizenship test, what is the form of government of the United States? The, it's not the right answer to say it's a democracy. Well, that's what's really right, important. Right. The right answer is it's a republic. Right. And, I, and I just read a piece, and I, I, this wasn't meant to say that republics are inferior to monarchies or anything like that, but I just read my piece pointing out that the country, if you look at the... the um, the world, these world poles, are what countries do people most want to live in. The, the countries which come up at the top of the poles are predominantly monarchies. Huh. You know, there are places like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and the Netherlands and New Zealand and Canada. You know. and, um, and usually Switzerland is in there, but, but, but the top, you know, six or seven, they're dominated by by monarchists, and that's amazing when you can say how few monarchists there are in the world. You know, they're really punching above their, their, their weight. And I just thought that was an interesting interesting thing. And I've never had so much hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, well, there's the, the myth of uh, 
Well, one of my professors who uh, I spent a lot of time with was, was John Shields, and he wrote the book uh, American Aeneas, oh. which is all about um, uh, the founding myth and it being not one of Christian, Christian mythology, which is one that we're kind of almost taught in schools, but one rather of Roman origin and classical origin, and, and how like the, the myth of Cincinnatus is enshrined with George Washington, rather yes, yes, in, in, intentionally. Yes, the founding um, fathers were deists, and yes, and yeah. uh, they were they were um, philosophers. And mm-hmm. yes, they're, 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 I mean, I, I wouldn't. I, I think um, I, I don't think you can can um, uh, neglect the importance of Christian political thinking on the margins of the mm-hmm. the. Um, um, the founding principles of the the republic, but there um, you could almost leave Christianity out, <laughs> you know, and and have this these these classical pagan texts, particularly Stoic mm-hmm. texts, which have a lot in common with with Christianity, and you could find almost everything <laughs> yep. that is that you need, you know, to write. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, all that stuff. Yeah, and and to to juxtapose it, you know, the the found the framers, the founders, however you want to put it, you know, they took on more of the classical ideology or uh, ideology is terrible uh, ideas, um, but the um, Constitution, in the sense of the body of of people and the the body politic, was one of Christianity. So it's almost like two heads of the same coin. You know, the the, the Framework in the government and the uh, leadership, or however you want to put it, that started you know set us off on the journey. We're one in classical origins, but the perpetuation of it was yes. I mean, I suppose that um, um, you know it is difficult to imagine the the um, the notion of civil liberties that uh, is um, encoded in the in the. Constitution of the United States. I suppose it's difficult to imagine that ever happening without the sort of the Reformation and the the um, the sense of um, um, uh, of godliness that um, was was very strong in the the uh, founding principles and traditions of, at least of some states, some of the thirteen colonies. Well, I'm I'm actually thinking of it more rather explicitly in the individuals themselves, like the ruled, you know, the the, you know, people who were allowed to vote at the founding of the country, you know, had one set of of education, but the vast majority of everybody else was rather puritan, puritan, right? And I think that you see the evolution of America, you know, being founded on these classical myths, but then I think it evolves to be one more of puritan and Christian ideas because of the rather large majority of the of the the country itself was was christian if if the founders were weren't because they were more of a you know classical and plus that was kind of du jour at the time of both the education as as well as the thought thoughts therein well it's just very interesting isn't it that even um our fellow citizens fellow residents of the country who um reject christianity do seem to think that they they ought to behave like like Christians, <laughs> and and they they you know they they just sort of recast all the language of the brotherhood of man and, and equality. They they recast these as humanist 
uh, without making them actually any different from the way they're expressed in, in Christian tradition. Um, so, you know, I mean, I guess the Christian models do seem to be inescapable. Yeah, um, so, oh, go ahead, do you have something else? But I, I've forgotten where, where, where we were, what drew us into this, because this, was a, this wasn't the main thrust of the conversations you wanted to no, this is totally yeah, great. Good. No, this is yeah. great. Yeah, this is All excellent. Right. Yeah, yeah, this is this is rather spot on. Um, okay, because so, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm not really an expert on um, on U.S. history, although I have ventured to write about it. Oh no, that's that's quite right. Um, so uh, there was something um, I was uh, from Robert Graves as well that I was reading that was sparked it rather, and then wa- uh, watching that presentation of of Hillgrand. Hillgrand is that her name? Sorry. The presentation, the me- medieval was Hillgrand, the nun. The, the nun... Uh, oh, Hildegard. Hildegard, Hildegard, yeah. Um, that was reminding me of it. Um, uh, so, you know, the this is really just more of an idea that I would love you to hear you just kind of expound upon. You know, it, I think it's interesting that the Promethean story of humans out of, you know, being crafted out of clay and, you know, in that presentation of, of coming out of mud... Also comes, you know, you can see Native American myths of emerging out of the soil and things like that and getting cropped up. Um, do, do you find it common or, or intriguing or even something that's worth being holding on to that there are a lot of these creation myths and other myths as well, like, you know, going back to the flood myth and things like that, that seem to be pervasive throughout multiple civilizations through the world? And is it some type of ancient origin thread to it? Um, or is there even anything to hold water to it? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, um, um, yes, this is, this is what um, um, George Eliot's um, character, um, uh, Mr. Cassobon, was looking for, wasn't it? He called it the key to all mythologies. <laughs> and I've always thought it was a chimerical quest and obviously you know myths are very culturally specific because you know well that's what myths are for there to justify the way things are the way the things are different from one culture to another nevertheless I mean obviously there are some um, types of mythical thinking that are so Ancient, they probably go back before you know the dispersion of humankind around the planet. Uh, I mean, for example, totemic thinking it's so widespread that I think it must have been, you know, many, many schools of thousands of years ago that it first occurred to people. Um, um, Uh, I, I don't know, maybe um, <coughs> sort of um, the idea of 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 mana, mm. the idea that there's some sort of um, um, underlying quality that makes things what they are, <laughs> essence, as it's called in Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be. Well, I call it a myth, of course, it might be true, but, but it, it certainly goes, there's no, it's, it's an idea that goes beyond the evidence. Um, uh, that also seems to be so widely detectable 
Uh, I mean, there's always near anthropological research hasn't found a similar idea <laughs> everywhere. So I, I, I think that also must be a very, very ancient notion. Um, maybe some other things as well. Um, nonetheless, when you find... Um, you know, very particular instantiation. So when you've got some, you know, uh, 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 um, um, I don't know, the myth of um, um, the creation of humans from dust, which is one of the things you mentioned. Um, I think that you've got to be open-minded about how the, those those ideas come to be so widely um, detectable. Um, because it's, it is, we know it's possible for, I mean, we, we, you know, we have got incontrovertible examples of ideas which crop up independently in different places without there being any mutual influence or any common source. The most famous example is, of course, the idea of agriculture itself, okay. which you know, occurs at least in independently, at least nine or ten different places around the world in very, very similar ways. You, different ecological environments and there were different crops and so on, but very broadly speaking, you know, the, the technology takes um, takes the same form of thinking that produces it. Uh, it's the same thinking in all of these different instances. So I think there is room for seeing these similarities as being kind of adventitious. Um, we, we, when we were talking about this um, before you switched the tape recorder on, I, I, I mentioned Edmund Leach, who, who, who was really concerned to show that Christianity isn't as unique as Christians think, and he pointed out that all the key myths of Christianity, the human, God, the virgin, birth, all those things, that you find any number of examples of them. Indeed, to some extent, he was, he was anticipated in this by James Fraser, and in many ways, The Golden Bough is a book which is about finding parallels for Christian myths in other cultures. So he does a lot more than that, but I think that he, he also had a uh, an agenda which he never declared explicitly of demonstrating that Christianity isn't unique. Of course, the fact something is, is, isn't unique doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in some ways, you could say it makes it more convincing <laughs> um, because if it were unique, it would, there would be something weirdly suspicious <laughs> about that. Um, but there are all these similar, and the, the frequency with which they they occur suggests to me that at least some of those similarities must be the result of, of independent um, um, origins in different places at different times. But I don't know if you held a pistol to my head and say, apart from the ones you've mentioned, which are the ones which you genuinely think have a common origin? I don't know. I wouldn't want to commit myself. I just don't think the the evidence is sufficient because you've got to have for for, for, for common origin you've really got to have something which is absolutely universal. And if it's not absolutely universal, then you've got to be able to trace, you know, the the ways in which the different societies have it might have shared some past of which it 
point where the idea could have been in, been diffused as those those societies, those cultures got got separated from one another. And I don't think we can do that for many of the um, for many of the myths that evince this characteristic of being very, very widespread. Mm, so I'm sorry. Like I think I'm 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 taking a very long route to dodging the question. No, I was hoping he would do something along those lines. So that's perfectly all right. Uh, no, so I mean that that's interesting because then it's almost as if like the the, the celebration of solstices is is, is definitely a, a shared commonality, um, you know, regardless of how they they celebrated or worshipped, you know, worshiping summer. And- well, of course, the point of the myth of the creation of humans from dust or earth is it, 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 it is um, I mean this is this is a uh, certainly a university. Um, a testable fact that we we are material creatures, whatever else we are, mm. we are definitely that, and we do have um, um, our materiality in common with everything else that's helpful. That's interesting, and and definitely more ancient sapiens were more acutely aware of that. We we tend to we tend to dilute ourselves of. I suppose so, although they also do seem to have been acutely uh, aware that there was more to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, obviously one of the, the very early discoveries or, or ideas that um, demonstrates the, the genius of um, our very remote uh, ancestors is the, you know, the notion that um, what you... See isn't what you get. There's there's a lot of other stuff that you don't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that there is a spirit world beyond the the rock. That, you know the the when you paint the the bison on the cave um, surface, you're reaching for, for realities, for sources of power which are embedded in a, a world that you can't attain because the rock's in the way. <laughs> uh, um, that. Um, um, when you um, um, when you see something moving, <laughs> that's what's going on is something spiritual, you know, as well as something physical. Um, that that appearances are deceptive. I mean, I think that might be the sort of one of the first great discoveries that humans um, humans make. My dogs, intelligent as they are. Um, rivaling many of my colleagues, um, my dogs, intelligent as they are, do tend to assume, <laughs> you know, that the, 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 what they smell or see <laughs> is, is, you know, that's, that, at least that's mainly what interests them. <laughs> um, whereas for humans, um, our very remote ancestors, possibly even before the emergence of Homo sapiens and the fossil record, seem to have been aware that there was more to life, and that there are realities that aren't disclosed by the senses. I mean, that's suggested, by the way, um, pre-sapiens, hominins or hominids, hundreds of thousands of years, and for example, in the caves of Atapuerca, buried there, dead in, in patterned 
ways. Well, well, why did they do that? You know, it, could, it wasn't that game, it was just for fun because they thought it was a musical. That's very unlikely to be the case. They did it because they thought it was meaningful. They were seeing something beyond um, what was physically detectable to sense perception. Uh, um, uh, that, that's so impressive. You know, it's much more impressive um, to be non-materialist. We, 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 there, there's a big school of thought which condemns all this sort of spiritual thing. They talk about animism and say it was something, you know, very dumb <laughs> and infantile. But actually, it's brilliant because, mm-hmm. um, uh, well, you know, um, um, my dogs can be as materialist as Marx or, or Richard Dawkins. It takes <laughs> something much cleverer than that to see, to see more to the world, to imagine more to the world. If, if, if materialism turns out to be the only truth. Uh, but sometimes to perceive um, very brilliant falsehoods <laughs> is a sign of intelligence. Totally. Um, I, I was hesitant to bring up where I'm about to steer the conversation, but you walk, you open the door, so I'm gonna run through it. Um, have you heard of Brian Marescu at all? He wrote a book called The Immortality Key. It came out. Oh well, I read the reviews. Yes, but I never read the book. Oh, I encourage you to read it. It's fascinating. I think you would find it intriguing. It's well written as well. It's it's captivating. Um, so my, here's my. Yes, well, I, I I mean I think I was I was very interested in reading the reviews because I've always thought that. Um, I can't imagine anything more boring than immortality. Oh, well, the interesting... Well, okay, so what he brings about, which is really interesting, is he connects... He calls it paleo-Christians, so, like, early Christianity with the cult of Dionysus. And the way that I'm going to bring it up and the way that you just expressed it um, is, do you think potentially the way that, you know, people were able to um, imagine these... Uh, worlds and these realities of beyond could have been achieved through some type of aesthetic state. You know, if it was, you know, in the in the New Testament, you know, Jesus uh, going into the desert and fasting, you know, there's been numerous, you know, uh, examples of, of fasting bringing around an aesthetic state as well as, you know, uh, hallucinogenic things of other, you know, mushrooms or argot or other things like that, um, or what he talks about, which is sometimes of herbs and in combination with, with this cult of Dionysus. Do you think that there has been uh, an influence of these type of ecstatic states in our ability to imagine? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I mean obviously, um, um, you know, you can achieve an ecstatic state which might give you some kind of insight um, that is compatible with with Christianity, you, you can achieve that state by various means, including mm-hmm. taking psychotropic substances. I, uh, my reading of early Christian ecstasy, early Christian mystical experience, um, which is described quite a bit, obviously, in, in the writings of St. Paul, he was yes. clearly susceptible to some kind of visionary experience, because his whole conversion starts with one of the most famous visions in the world. Right, right, right. Um, when he's he's blinded, but he hears the voice of Christ speaking to him. So it's a kind of distorted vision, but it's 
definitely an ecstasy, it's definitely a mystical moment. And St. Peter's, it makes an allusion to what sounds like a, a, a mystical experience of his own. Um, but I mean, did the, 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 these seem to be induced in, by some other method, <laughs> um, perhaps by prayer. Mm-hmm. Perhaps by fasting, which is a form of sensory deprivation, which of course can affect your your mind. Um, but you could also do it by taking drugs. You could do it by by dancing. You could do it by drumming. And different cultures, just these different techniques are used in different ways. Breathing, even yeah. yeah. But I mean, clearly, direct experience of God isn't necessary in Christianity because it's replaced by um, knowledge of. Christ, so you, you don't need a mystical experience. You've got an incarnate God, you know, to, to, to show you by the way he behaves and talks in his own life as a human being. What he, the, the, you, you know what God is like. You don't need the hotline necessarily. And therefore, I think mysticism has tended to be marginal to Christianity. I don't mean that it hasn't revealed some very important insights and made some important contributions, of course um, it has, but you could imagine Christianity without mysticism. Um, and I'm not really, so I, 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 I think that it's much more interesting for how it differs um, from religions that rely on, on psychotropic states and the mediation of a sense of transcendence. Um, what about its influence on culture or civilizations as a whole? Oh, well, of course, it's negligible. You think so? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always thought that um, it's a bit like what, you know, Gandhi said about you when he was asked, what, what do you think of Western civilization? And he thought it would be a good idea. And you could say, <laughs> you'd say the same about Christianity. You know? It's great. But no one has ever actually followed it or applied its principle, except... You know, saints in their own spheres, but 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 we need more than that to really to change the world in a Christian direction, and we've never achieved it. And we've—I'm I'm a Catholic, working for a Catholic university, and we've 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 sedulously, you know, nurtured and maintained this huge organisation which we call the the Church, which has, you know thousand million people working for it in one way or another all over the world and we still can't you know, do anything that's really uh, really makes people good which is you know, that's like an object and we, we've done nothing towards this people are still evil as ever um, man for man and woman for woman um, there's probably more evil than ever, but that's because there are more people. <laughs> um, so, I think on the whole, Christianity has been a monumental failure uh, and is more notable for how little it's changed the world, for, for how much it has. Of course, you know, at a, at, a, at a sort of micro level, it's had lots of great effects, you know, I mean, it's, it's consoled millions of. Um, the sick and the dying, it's, 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 it's insp- helped to inspire and finance innumerable good works and hospitals and, 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 and schools and, and, and monasteries and, 
um, places of prayer. It's inspired wonderful art and music, and uh, so you know, it's 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 done a lot of good stuff. And and of course, as 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 its opponents will be very quick to point out, it's also inspired a lot of persecution and hatred and warfare and violence, or at least justified some of that stuff. So um, uh, so there's a balance of um, the good effects and and bad effects. So the overall transformative effect of Christianity, which, if people took it really seriously, would be taken and would lead us into a completely different world in which a world of of love and kindness and generosity and and, and peace. (laughs) We haven't got that because Christianity has not been successful in delivering it. I think anyone's got to be honest about that. That's interesting. Um, how are you on time? Are you feeling well? Okay? I suppose we probably, I mean, apart from anything else, you've probably now got too much stuff to edit. We probably no, I know. Have... This is going to go out just as it is. Really? Is it? Oh, one, 100%. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, in that case, I'm trying to decide. In that case, surely we've already got far more than is necessary oh, to no. bore your listeners into switching off. No, your episode is ranked very highly amongst mine, and it was all two hours of it, so we can go as long as you are feeling oh, well, energetic. Well, very, very kind. I mean, I guess, though, I mean, you know, we, we, we can you know, wrap here. Call, call a halt to this uh, for the moment. Let's do one more topic, one more question. Okay, I have one more question for you, and perhaps it could be a conjoined one. Um, well, the two questions I was going to, to end it with, one was, um, of all of your, and this is obviously just the first person that comes to mind, who is the most misunderstood individual in history? And then the other one was, what is the most impactful event in, in history? Well, everybody thinks that himself or herself <laughs> um, is the most misunderstood. I, I appreciate your honesty. Um, yeah. um, uh, especially by my, my fellow historians. Oh, above all, by reviewers, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I've always thought, you know, that it's good to be misunderstood. The misunderstanding is very creative. And you know, in my own case, um, almost everything that I can offer to other people by way of, I don't know, if they're crazy enough to ask me, I can give them advice, you know, but it's almost certainly going to be bad advice. Um, uh, if they ask me for a class, I can give it to them, but I'm and the facts are probably all going to turn out to be undermined by future research. <laughs> so, so I've always thought the best thing is to be misunderstood because then at least you've got a chance <laughs> that the effect is going to be beneficial. Um, and so I wouldn't, I, you know, in a way I'm saying I think it's the wrong question because when you ask who's the most misunderstood because you're assuming that it's bad to be misunderstood. Oh, no, actually, I, no, I find it rather yeah. useful. Sure. I, I, think, I think Julius Caesar is a misunderstood individual, but I think it's rather useful in his misunderstanding. I, I, I framed it rather intentionally, just how I kind of frame my happiness question. Well, every, every individual who is um, um, idolized or demonized is misunderstood. Exactly. By those who right. idolize and demonize. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe it's very difficult to calibrate the difference between someone who's the most misunderstood and the next most misunderstood <laughs> person in... Um, I was thinking more along the lines of, of your studies. Like, for example, I the thought... The most misunderstood person must be God. 
Oh. Because when you look at the way you know, people have interpreted him as urging them to, um, uh, um, I don't know, kill people, um, um, uh, be sexually promiscuous, uh, or um, madly self-denying, or... Um, um, uh, um, God incarnate, even. I mean, just, just, you know, the, the, the number of deeds and thoughts that people have um, justified on the grounds that they've been commanded to do them by, by God, you know, right down to the level of the, the paranoid schizophrenic who, who says God told him to commit the murders. You know, <laughs> put all that together and I think you've got your most misunderstood person. It's wow. gone. And that's the most, most impactful person. Well, clearly the most impactful person must also be the most misunderstood. <laughs> because most of what we do uh, is the result of misunderstanding and um, no one has had more opportunity to affect our behaviour by that means than the most misunderstood person. So the answer in both cases is gone. Uh, the second one I asked was event, but I like your answer regardless. Oh, oh event, the most effective event. Oh, God. While you're thinking of that. I mean, I don't know, you've obviously got to go back to the creation of the universe, haven't you? Your answers are uh, amazing. That, that is not at all what I would have expected, because it is true. I mean, even if you find yourself... Like, let's just take the extremes of it. You find yourself a religious zealot, and you find yourself an atheist, regardless, the most misunderstood and, and obviously driven towards acts of... of uh, Virtue and uh, destruction are both that same thing. I mean, even I mean, I'll, I'll stick on the well. Roman since the Catholic, I regard God, you know, as the source of all grace. I naturally think that anybody who who's an atheist um, is 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 you know, because they're misunderstanding God in a very big big way because he's attributing to himself virtues that you know were implanted in him, including that critical intelligence that enables him to reject the idea right. of God. You know, he is. He or she really owes all of that to um, to God, and what a great, what a creative example of misunderstanding that is, and what a brilliant, um, uh, uh, I don't know, brilliant maneuver of God you know, to use that, to use grace in that way, so that the person who's um, uh, who's behaving well, constructively lovingly, generously, kindly because of, of God doesn't know that because that's, the, that's, that's, that's how you tell whether somebody's good isn't it if they, it's by, if they say look how marvellous I am <laughs> um, thanks to me <laughs> this achievement or that achievement has been, has been registered or this person has done this or that Good deed. When you say it's because that's when you show that you're not really good yourself. Um, but of course, very interestingly, God isn't like that. He's very happy to wipe himself out of the picture. Say <laughs> so that those those people in whom the grace of the Holy Spirit is operating aren't aware of it. Um, that that that's pretty impressive. That to me confirms my. Understanding of God is a really good guy. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, I'm going to stop that there. That was excellent. Thank you very much.